It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 8th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. As you know, the government will increase carbon taxes from the 1st of May. Yesterday in the Dáil, Sinn Féin made it clear why it opposes uh, these increases. We do know that government can and must do more. And that is what we heard from the SRI last month. It's what we heard from the central bank just yesterday, where they said that there is headroom for government to act. But instead, you remain intent on pushing ahead with carbon tax increases, hikes next month, increasing energy prices when efforts should be focused on reducing them. That was Sinn Féin on Thursday, but this was Sinn Féin on Wednesday. We don't have the luxury of more time. The time for talking on climate has passed. Radical action is needed now. And these carbon budgets are the Advisory Council's best estimate and if implemented, can deliver the 51% reduction on emissions by 2030. We in Sinn Féin are in no doubt about the scale of the climate crisis facing the world, and in line with our support of the 2030 and 2050 targets, we will be voting to approve these carbon budgets as proposed by the Advisory Council. Sinn Féin's Pierce Doherty opposing carbon tax increases yesterday, but as you've just heard and Darren O'Rourke made it clear, on Wednesday, Sinn Féin supported the increases. Uh, look, I would add my voice to what Deputy O'Rourke has said. We are in support in relation to these carbon budgets, but we have serious worries in relation to um, delivery. Uh, there is uh, Rory O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Meath, who's on the line with us. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Sinn Féin clearly at sixes and sevens. No, 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 Michael. In, in fairness, uh, the Climate Change Advisory Committee have come up with obviously carbon budgets in relation to the reduction of emissions from the point of view of being able to make the 2030 and 2050 um, basically, well at 2050 obviously carbon neutrality and then a 51% reduction by 2030 in, in emissions whereas the carbon tax we're told, well here, we know the idea of a carbon tax. A carbon tax is basically to make fossil fuels 
you know, more expansive from a point of view of to change uh, what consumers will do. But we all know we're in the middle of a slightly different situation um, than previously as regards the cost of living crisis, particularly the cost of fuel crisis. So it's mitigations we are looking for. So it doesn't make particular sense to increase in May while the government themselves are looking but at... You were going to vote in favour of it. Uh, Darren O'Rourke said you were going to vote in favour of it. Uh, a vote wasn't taken because there were so few opposed to the increases. You we said you agreed with Darren O'Rourke. What are you on about? You're at sixes and sevens. On one hand, you're we're, saying we're you don't not. want the carbon tax increase, but you're going to vote in favour for the increase. What on earth? No, we're not. Um, as I say, it is literally what we are... The carbon budget relates to um, literally reducing and reducing emissions. That's what it relates to. The carbon tax is a completely different thing. We've all been told what it's meant to do. Now, it's meant to be able to change what people make decisions in relation to what they do in the sense of using less fuel spending, you know what I mean, looking for alternative means. Are you telling me that uh, if um, the carbon budget had failed on Wednesday, that the carbon tax would have increased on the 1st of May? Yeah, I'm saying they have no relation to each other. Right, Okay. Uh, that's a surprise, I think, to people, is it not? Well, I, I think there was probably a bit of disingenuous commentary from certain politicians at the time of trying to to conflate them. No, no, they're two absolutely separate things. In fairness, like members of the well, a member of the CCAC has even proposed that it doesn't make sense to go ahead with uh, the increase in carbon tax at this point in time. No, so she's hardly disagreeing with herself. You know, it's Kara Ostenburg. Um, so, therefore, as I said, they're absolutely separate. And I think what we really need to look at is where the government can make major moves. We all know here you know, we're an island. We know we have the huge potential to be a superpower in relation to renewables, and that's obviously wind in particular. We know the difficulties we have around planning. We know that the Attorney General is looking at certain issues in relation to that. But at this point in time, and we know that frameworks have been put in place in relation to wind energy, but the fact is we're all aware of the story as regards judicial reviews and board panel and all the rest of it, and we know that they're absolutely under-resourced. And therefore, there are serious worries in the industry and wider that we won't be able to make our targets in relation to renewables. And look, wind energy is where it's at. If we've been taught one thing by the present circumstances in Ukraine with the Russian invasion, that we really don't want to be wedded to fossil fuels, we particularly don't want to be wedded to Russian fossil fuels. Mm. Okay, Uh, the motion that was in front of you uh, on Wednesday... Uh, would have uh, seen um, the budgets come into effect and set out the emissions framework for the country that will support our overall climate objective, uh, according to the minister. Uh, and would that was that not necessary uh, for the carbon tax to increase on the first of May? No, no, no. That there that the carbon tax is is set in train at this point in time. The increases are set in train for the for the foreseeable future. Um, and the fact is, we need to actually put a stall on it, given the situation I ha- we have at the minute. And, and like, as I say, 
we need to make sure that we, like we're all looking for mitigations now. We'd like a bit more information in relation to what particular conversations the Irish government has had with the council and particularly with the European Commission because we need to have as much leverage as possible because none of us are entirely sure what the story is going to be in relation to costs other than we're dealing with huge inflation and we have huge volatility, particularly due to the invasion of Ukraine by by Russia, which absolutely has destabilised everything. Mm. Yeah, and the price of everything has already gone through the roof and will continue to increase in price. And I would say that, Michael, and look, we all know then within that we have added anomalies. Another issue that myself and yourself have spoken about previously is the particular issue we have with communal heating systems. I brought that up in my speech the other night, particularly the issue in relation to uh, Cowlin Hall. Uh, I have spoken to um, Eamon Ryan you know, later that evening specifically on that, and look, I've been assured by him that he is doing some element of due diligence work with his officials and that I will have contact with them in the very near future. But like we are there, we have people who are looking at, you know, huge bills, like I think it's 42 cents per kilowatt hour and this could possibly go up in relation to um, them paying for their heating bills. And look, we, we know there are particular issues there, you know, as regards frontline energy buying from Energia. I've spoken to Energia. I've spoken to um, to GNI. I've spoken to everyone I possibly can, but I, I believe this is another instance where government has to do an element of the heavy lifting and ensure that we protect, uh, we protect um, our own people. But beyond that, I think we have to look at the fact that this is a deeply inefficient system. There are still systems similar to it being built. And from an environmental point of view, it's a, it's a complete basket case. Now, we will need to look at a long-term, even a medium-term solution. But initially, we need some sort of, as I say, cap on prices and an acceptance that uh, these are um, domestic users. Okay, the Independent Rural Group uh, opposed um, the carbon budgets on Wednesday because they felt that it was going to lead to the increases that are coming on the 1st of May. Were they mistaken? No, they are. Like, we have to look, we have to look at um, these reductions. Look, we all know, we've heard, we saw the IPCC report, we've, we've heard from all the experts uh, as I said myself in my speech the other day, it's not only reports we need to look at. If we look at weather reports over the last couple of years, we know that there are serious, significant pressures on. Like myself and Anton Waters and others would have had meeting with Loud County Council in relation to CFRAM, you know, and flood defence protections at the minute. But we don't know exactly what we're we're going to be talking about and the dangers we're going to face if mm. we cannot reduce emissions and at least give ourselves a, a fighting chance. But what we're talking about in relation to the carbon tax, it's literally, it's a taxation that's meant to change what people do. But people do not have the alternatives at this point in time. And no more than we showed in the pandemic, the state has to do the heavy lifting. The heavy lifting in this stage is making sure that we have absolute frameworks ready and that we can move in relation to retrofitting and all those necessary Mm. small moves. But, But the big stuff is about renewables. And it's about us being able to control to a degree, you know, where our sourcing of, uh, you know, energy and electricity comes from, but also is about us 
playing a big part in reducing emissions. We're obviously part of the European Union. Sometimes people use the argument, so what does it matter what Ireland does if China and America doesn't? But look, the European Union, if it's anything, needs to be, you know, I suppose that beacon of hope and justice. And, you know, it has to represent what is necessary in relation to progress. And this is beyond progress. I suppose this is about, let's be clear, saving the planet. But I think where the government fails is we're missing the low-hanging fruit, the stuff we can really make a difference on. We're getting caught on sideshows in relation to the carbon tax. Um, but the fact is, it doesn't make sense as you're looking for the ability to reduce prices that you would increase prices. Look, we need to make moves in relation to household, um, in relation to home heating oil and other such things that people in in our part of the world, Michael, you know mm. what I mean, used to a huge amount. And then as, you know, but at the same time, we do need to look at, as I say, changing the nature of how we supply ourselves with fuel and electricity and that we can bring ourselves to a more sustainable place. But um, how does the government get there? The government's uh, method of achieving that is by way of a carbon tax, which will fund the type of things that you're talking about, uh, whether that's retrofitting houses or, or whatever. And well, this carbon budget rubber stamps that approach, does it not? No. Well, what, what I would say in relation to the carbon tax, see this, the, the significant increases that the government has put in place into the next number of years, right up till 2030. The problem with it is that like, they are going to, at the same time, mitigate by increasing social protection payments to make up for this. So it's actually, it's not even the amount of money that they are saying that is going to be put in place you know, it's 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 actually it's a it's a false economy. Now, there will be opportunities into the future when people have alternatives, whether that relates to you know the sort of car they're going to purchase into the future mm. or the sort of heating system that needs available. But you look at the government schemes that they offer at the minute; they all fail the equity test. In most cases, it's 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 there and it's available for somebody that has the resources to put the money in themselves, and then there will be there will be match funding um, from from government. But it's not necessarily there for somebody who's in the rental sector or somebody that doesn't have those sort of resources. We all know that we have a huge issue. We're talking about Loud County Council in relation to you know maintenance issues, and we don't have doors and windows in some places in Dundalk and Drogheda that are up to standard, and we have heat just literally dissipating. You know what I mean? At a huge cost to the people that are living there. And we really need a ramp up in relation to the retrofit scheme, because then that's the best of all worlds. Not only will we save those people money, we will we will seriously um, improve, I suppose, the environmental impact of, you know, what has been our failure to put money into uh, local authority housing over the last number of years. OK, uh, and that's why uh, you... Uh, approved the budgets. Uh, that's why Sinn Féin would have voted in favour of uh, the budgets. So how is that going to be funded? We recognise, we, we, we recognise, Michael, that we really need to make the necessary moves. You know, like we all accept the danger that we're, that we're in at this point in time. But the fact is, you need to bring people with you. And the only way you bring people with you is that you engage you know, with every sector, with all stakeholders, and we talk about what's possible, what's doable. You know, and as things change, and um, you can you can you can do different things like at the end of the day when people have alternatives the idea of a carbon tax may make it may make a difference 
But again, I'm going to go back to mm. at the point in time that we're looking for derogations in relation to that so that people aren't absolutely crippled. And as I say, I would like more clarity for the government in relation to their communications on that. But it doesn't make sense that we just keep adding the carbon tax. See, at this point in time, they only have to stall this for a particular period of time, mm. at least until we get through the period that we're in at the but minute. But you gave the government a green light, didn't you? I mean, this is the mechanism for doing all of that and you've approved it, which means you've approved the carbon tax because that's the mechanism that the government is using to reduce greenhouse gases. Look, I'm like I stated earlier, see what the government needs to do is make those major moves in relation to renewables. That's one of the major points that need to be done. They need to look at the schemes they have available as regards retrofitting and I think there's a need for an element of nuance and changing to something that's a bit more fit for purpose. Well if they don't have it, why did you vote in favour of uh, the carbon budgets? Yeah, well because because we still need to reach those figures. And how are we going to reach them? Well, well, here, see, at this point in time, and let's be clear, uh, I'm here talking as a Sinn Féin TD. My hope is within the very near future that we will have a different government. But before that, we will make our political calls in relation to what the government does. You you saw that at leaders' questions. And what the government is doing is introducing a carbon tax, and you've rubber-stamped that, have you not? No, no. We have carbon taxes at this point in time. Yes, uh, they're going to increase on the 1st of May, but you've... you've, you've, Uh, No, no. No, no, Michael, I, I think that's unfair. I said the two things are absolutely um, separate. What we need to happen in relation to that is that that is at least postponed given the circumstances we are in at this point in time. It is not having the impact it is meant to do. So we need to look at where we can really make differences. And like I said, the big one is renewables. We all accept we're an island. Look, yeah. you put your head out the window. How are you going to pay for the renewables? You realise we can be a superpower in relation to mm. wind energy. How are you going to pay for the renewables? Because uh, the policy is to fund it through carbon taxes. You've voted in favour uh, of the policy uh, and that links you uh, uh, as a supporter of the introduction of uh, these increases. No, what I said is the government talk about part of the carbon tax and particularly any increases that they are put aside in relation to protections and social protections for those that are being impacted, which means on some level they cancel each other out and then that it it also adds funding in relation to the retrofitting scheme, which, uh, which I don't believe are absolutely fit for purpose. I think there needs to be changes. Like, but we also, like at the end of the day, how you pay for anything is through taxation and tax taxation in different places. But it doesn't make sense, and I'm going to repeat it myself mm-hmm. again, that at the time that you're looking for mitigations, you're looking for the European Union to provide you with a derogation so you can reduce VAT across the board in relation to home heating oil and all mm-hmm. the rest of it. It does not make sense that you would increase carbon tax. Yeah, well, that Whatever derogation has been shot down, hasn't it? There is to be no derogation. Well, I would say in relation to a lot of it, we are now hearing about Mm. a possible plan in May and and such. We didn't get the moves that we would have liked quick enough, but there's still a considerable amount of conversation happening at a European level. Everyone gets the idea that you need to mitigate some of the difficulties that are caused by you know, the inflation mm. crisis, which is combined with the war situation okay. due to what the Russians are right, in Ukraine. Let's ask the same question again, because uh, it's been one question, I suppose, throughout. Uh, you're you're, you're um, in favour of retrofitting houses, correct? Yes. Okay. And as things stand, 
the way to fund that is carbon taxes, is it not? Government, well, here, like, how do you fund anything? You fund but, anything. But, but is, is the policy, no like as it stands, like, that retrofitting houses will be funded through carbon taxes? Yeah, well, right, clear. okay. Uh, and uh, and you voted in favour of that? We didn't vote. What we voted in favour of were emission budgets. You know, mm. these are emission but budgets that's get, that that's, to be reached. Uh, and the way to reach that is by retrofitting houses in part, uh, and the way to fund that is through carbon taxes in part. I've already, sta- I, I've already stated that here, the retrofitting schemes that are being employed at this point in time aren't good enough. Retrofitting is part of anything. You pay for anything through taxation. There are alternatives. We have proposed alternatives in relation to taxation. But beyond that, what I am stating is the big one that we need to see movement on is renewables and particularly wind. We could be a wind energy superpower and that is not happening and you're having much commentary from experts and those in the industry that the government isn't doing what it needs to do in relation to bringing that about. And that will play a significant role in relation to us being able to reduce our emissions. Okay, all right. We'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed. Uh, So... Uh, I think uh, that's uh, clear to all of us. That's Rory Murku, by the way, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Meath, who's voted in favour of the budget, which is to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and uh, by doing that, Sinn Féin's position is clear. They're not voting to increase the carbon tax on the 1st of May. But the government policy for reducing greenhouse gas emissions is to increase the carbon tax and in line with the taxes that are already being collected, that that would help fund some of the measures that will bring about a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Make of, all, make of that what you will uh, and let us know, if you will, please. Our, our thanks to Rory Murku. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the war is far from over, as you know, and uh, the Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kalebo has been talking about uh, the situation in Ukraine and how this fight could go on for some time to come. First, yes, Russia, uh, Russia withdrew from Kiev and the vicinity of Kiev, not because, as it was stated by Putin's spokesperson Peskov, they wanted to create constructive atmosphere for negotiations but because they were pushed back by Ukrainian army and because they required additional resources for a large-scale offensive in Donbas. So we do observe redeployment of uh, Russia's units from north of Ukraine and northeast of Ukraine to eastern Ukraine. And actually, as we speak, the battle for Donbas is underway. It has not reached its... uh, maximum scale, but uh, every day the heaviest fighting takes place in that part of Ukraine. And more is to come, unfortunately. The battle for Donbas will remind you, and I regret to say it, but this is true, the battle for Donbas will remind you of Second World War, with large operations, maneuvers, involvement of thousands of tanks, armored vehicles, planes, artillery. Uh, This will not be a local operation based on what we see in Russia's preparations to it. Russia has its plan, we have ours, and the battlefield will decide 
the and the outcome of this battle will be decided on the battlefield. It's frightening, isn't it? Uh, the Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitro Kuleba, and it is on the battlefield. He says that it'll be decided, uh, but there are some terrible things happening on the battlefield. There's nothing less happening than major war crimes. Responsible nations have to come together to hold these perpetrators accountable. And together with our allies and our partners, we're going to keep raising the economic cost and ratchet up the pain for Putin and further increase Russia's economic isolation. <laughs> the bravery, the grit, and the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian people, Russia has already failed in its initial war aims. Russia wanted to take Ukraine's capital city, Kiev, and topless democracy and elected government. Today, Kiev still stands, and that government still presides. This fight is far from over. Here's the point. This war can continue for a long time, but the United States will continue to stand with Ukraine and the Ukrainian people in the fight for freedom. And I just want you to know that. And by the way, if I got to go to war, I'm going with you guys. Oh dear. That's the American President Joe Biden talking about going to war. Uh, but there certainly seems to be a consensus uh, that Russia has committed war crimes. The European Union has set up a joint investigation team with Ukraine to collect evidence and testimonies on the ground. We will hold accountable those who are responsible for war crimes. The perpetrators must pay. After Butcher, more than ever, Europe stands firmly with Ukraine. We stand with Ukrainians in their devastated cities and their bomb shelters. We stand with them in their parliament, surrounded by sandbags and barricades. We stand with the millions who flee the invaders. And we will do everything in our power to ensure that they can return home safely. And this is the message, HRVP Borrell, and I will bring to President Zelensky when we will be visiting Kyiv at the end of this week. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Now, if you want evidence of war crimes, perhaps Ukrainian security forces have discovered such evidence because of radio communication uh, between Russian soldiers uh, that uh, they have managed to grab. Uh, Some listeners might find this recording disturbing, uh, but this is a a recording, apparently, of soldiers, Russian soldiers in Ukraine talking when they were under severe pressure and outnumbered by Ukrainians and an order comes to commit what is considered to be a war crime to kill civilians. Машина проехала, не увидели там машины или техника и два человека срочно по гражданке. Давайте всех нахуй там, ёбаный в рот, блядь. Russian soldiers in heavy fighting on the front line recorded, heard saying the car drove by, a car obviously drove by and one of them is saying to the commander, did you see that car or the equipment? Two persons from the grove dressed in civilian clothes. The commander then says, effing kill them all for F's sake. The soldier replies, got it. All the village here is in civilian clothes. The commander says, what the F is wrong with you, mofos? The soldier replies, civilians? Am I to slay them all? Are we to slay them all? The commander says, clear. Yes, got it, the soldier replies. Mofos, the commander says again. Another soldier is recorded as saying, 
Shit, it's so effed up. We sit here, there's a village in front of us, 10 to 15 kilometres forward, there's their group. 150,000 of the effing cockholes. And us, if there are effing 3,000, it's effing cool. Duck, he shouts. Holy shit, says another. Where the F did they come from? F knows, says the other soldier. What should we do? What happens now? They're on the left. They're on the right. They're effing surround us. We're in the effing defence now, not on the offensive. There are about 150,000 of those mofos there. What's that village called? Karkovka or... Or what is it? It's near Mariupol. F knows. Anyway, that's the effing thing. Another soldier said, How is that there are so effing many of them? I don't know, says the other soldier. There's a big group, about 150,000. They said on the news, We're going to be staying here. They were coming, wanted to go back a bit to the village. We're in Pololi and... These mofos are in front of us, he he says. I was worried myself about the fact that there are so many of them and so few of us. We have no effing support, no effing aviation, nothing. Slay them all, came the command, as the Russian soldiers found themselves in this circumstance. Clearly outnumbered, it seems 3,000 Russian troops facing 150,000 Ukrainians. And the command came, slay them all all slay the civilians. Now, if that's not bad enough, the Ukrainian president is warning it's going to get worse. The work began with analysis of the siege in Borovyanka. It's much worse there, even more victims of the Russian occupiers. And what will happen when the world learns the truth about what the Russian military did in Mariupol? The same cruelty, the same terrible crimes. The Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. Michael Reed on LMFM. According to the World Health Organization, female genital mutilation involves uh, the partial or total removal of external female genitalia or other injury to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons. There's no health benefits for girls or women, but it can cause severe bleeding and problems, urinating and later cysts, infections as well as complications in childbirth and increased risks of newborn deaths. 200 million girls across the world have been subjected to FMG and it usually takes place sometime between infancy and the age of 15. In regard to recommendation 37 that says all government action to prevent and counter domestic domestic sexual and gender-based violence should be coordinated by a cabinet minister with direct responsibility for immediate uh, implementation of the national strategy. Akedo support this recommendation and additionally highlight the importance of including all forms of domestic, sexual and gender-based violence, including female genital mutilation, early enforced marriages and trafficking in the national strategy to reflect diversity and lived experiences of women living in Ireland today. According to Akedo, the research and report, there are 5,975 women who have been subjected to female genital mutilation living in Ireland. 6,000 girls born in Ireland or originating from female genital FGM-affected countries under the age of 15 and living in Ireland are at risk of female genital mutilation. 
And we know in Akidwa and everybody, those who have been following the news, that Ireland witnessed the first case of female genital mutilation in 2020. This case reaffirmed the need to address this issue fully to ensure children from affected communities are fully protected. Right, so that's uh, Dr. Salome Mbuga of Akidwa, who was giving evidence to Enroctus Committee yesterday asking uh, that female genital mutilation would be considered to be domestic violence and treated in that way. Let's talk to Dr. Caroline Munyi. Migrant Women's Health Coordinator with Akidwa. And a very good morning to you, Caroline. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I found that shocking to listen to, that almost 6,000 girls living in this country have uh, been the subject of female genital mutilation. Uh, How is that the case? Yeah, it's uh, it's 6,000 women, almost 6,000 women are living in Ireland today, have been subjected to female genital mutilation. It's illegal though, isn't it? It's illegal in Ireland, uh, but uh, it's also important to note, Michael, that um, that cutting did not happen here. The women came, moved into Ireland when they were already cut. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but the case which was prosecuted, uh, successfully prosecuted in uh, 2020, that uh, that cutting happened in Ireland. Is it possible to explain why it happens? I, I mean, I, I, I think I've heard that it's for religious reasons, but I don't understand that. Can you explain that to me? It's, uh, it's, uh, it, it happens mostly for cultural reasons, and we like calling it a harmful cultural practice. And uh, what we mean by harmful cultural practice is, is that um, there are many, uh, in each culture, there are nice, there are good things and things which are not good. And uh, so, like, female genital mutilation, what it does, uh, as you've well read before, before a few minutes ago, mm. is that it causes significant harm to the health of women and girls, and uh, it's a severe human rights violation of women and girls. Is it done so that women don't enjoy sex. That is one of the reasons, and uh, actually it's a form of uh, power and control. So it's, it's a way of controlling a woman's sexuality. And uh, actually it's done for some of the reasons which are advanced uh, from the cultural perspectives of the practicing communities. It is done to make women more marriageable. And uh, that means that uh, a woman will not uh, desire to mm. have anybody else apart maybe from her husband. And, Fa- her husband and remains faithful to the husband. Uh, yes. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Uh, and is held captive, if you like, in uh, the marriage. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, you're right there, Michael. But at what cost? I mean, the complications are manifold and yeah. dreadful, it would seem, and it destroys so many people's lives. It has. But you see what happens, uh, because you can see that uh, the 200 million women uh, in, uh, globally are affected by this practice. So like that's a huge number. And in some countries where it is practiced, you can see, uh, like the statistic, uh, statistically, like in some countries, it's 98% of the population. So that means out of every 10 women you have from some countries, you gather them together, it means at least nine have gone through it. So although we are talking about this, um, the, 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 this negative effect of FGM, when it is so widely practiced and a lot of women are suffering at any given time, it is hard sometimes mm. to point to FGM as the reason for their suffering because, again, this is something which has been happening for 
thousands and thousands of years. So not is it a rare occurrence in this country, Caroline? Uh, we have heard we, yeah, we've yeah. heard we've heard of cases, but are, are they few and far between? Yeah, it is. It is, it is rare in this country. One because of the law, and uh, but although it is, we are saying it's rare, still, um, when you look at the number of girls who are at high risk of being subjected to this to to to, to this practice. Still, uh, we need to be on the lookout, and uh, this practice actually is illegal. It's illegal here in Ireland, and uh, Akidwa campaigned to have um, the law against FGM, which came uh, which came into place in uh, 2012, and it was tested properly in um, in 2020 when the case was prosecuted and uh, successfully prosecuted. Okay. We have to leave it there. Uh, as You've made your case uh, to the Oireachtas uh, Committee uh, uh, about how it should be looked on here and how people should be supported and indeed how women uh, who've uh, come into this uh, country from elsewhere should be uh, accommodated if uh, they fall victim to domestic violence for that matter. We're out of time though this morning and thank you indeed for your time and for joining us on the programme. That's Dr Caroline Munyi, Migrant Women's Health Coordinator with Akidwa. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, to uh, an event that occurred almost six years ago, as you've been hearing in uh, the bulletins and uh, the conviction of four men yesterday following an awful night that happened on the 27th of December 2016 in a car in the Midlands. Uh, the driver of the car, Marcos Vinicius de Silvia Umbellino, was 22 years of age and he was convicted yesterday of sexually assaulting a woman by groping and molesting her on that journey. He was also convicted of raping her at Harbour Road. Another man, Eduardo Diaz Ferreira Filho, who was 24, uh, was convicted of sexually assaulting her on the initial journey and then convicted of orally raping the girl at a car park. Gabriel Gomez de Rocha, 24 years of age, convicted of sexually assaulting a girl on the car journey out of town, also found guilty of raping her in the car at a remote spot and at the same time forced his penis into her mouth uh, De Rocha and Feriofilio were convicted of falsely imprisoning uh, the girl uh, because uh, the woman said uh, that at one point one of the men told her not uh, uh, that she couldn't get out of the car. They said not until we get our threesome and that uh, the two men in the back seat stopped her from getting out. A 23-year-old man, Ethan Niccolo, um, was convicted of sexually assaulting the girl on that journey between Tullamore and Kilbegan and of sexually assaulting her when they got to Kilbegan. And a fifth man, Connor Byrne, uh, was due to go on trial, but he had pleaded guilty to raping the girl on the same night. Uh, the girl in question uh, it was the subject of all of those assaults, one 17-year-old girl uh, who the judge praised for her bravery and dignity. Let's uh, speak to Nolan Blackwell, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. A very good morning to Nolan. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. It's fine to har- hard to find words um, to describe uh, what happened to that young girl. Yeah, and, and if it's hard for us, imagine how it must have been for her uh, to to just try and she had to put words on that in order to tell her friend first of all and at a later date to tell an investigating guard that, and then to hold this 
every single aspect of it in her memory, in, in to the front of her memory uh, since uh, for the past five five years and four months uh, since the event took place on, on uh, Saint Stephen's uh, night uh, back back in uh, back five years ago. So again, it just remind you know it's a desperate case, and it is really good to see the credit that the judge gave her in um, uh, on hearing of the conviction, just her dignity, how impressed she was with her. But it is hard. You know, we often talk about the brutality of the crime and the rest of it. I think we don't often talk enough about the impact on somebody, Michael, when that happens. But we certainly know that today this kind of case will bring a number of people onto our helpline who either remember something that happened themselves or who are so upset about this that they need a safe space to talk. And the 24-hour helpline is there and you're very good about yeah. rem- remembering the number. We'll say that at the end. Yeah, it's well, just uh, to recognise w- that... 1-800-77, you know, People can ring and talk uh, and a lot more, but uh, that number is available. And just uh, if you want to get a pen and paper... Uh, do so and we'll repeat it and we'll give you uh, other ways of making contact. Uh, but sorry, Nolene, for cutting across you. But Yeah, no, no, that, 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 that's grand. It's, it's, it's just great to get yes. it out there for people. Look, um, everybody in that was a young person at the time. And I think it is a case that is horrifying, uh, but in some ways very relatable uh, for a lot of young people right now. And we actually have... To, we have to do better. Um, now, there, there, there can be no uh, discredit to the guys. This was prosecuted. This was investigated, prosecuted, uh, right to the to, mm. to the end degree. Of course, there it is. But that you know that there is any doubt about what consent is in Ireland. That you know that there is a, that that there is a question about that that anyone would not understand today in Ireland, and some people don't that non-consensual sexual activity is sexual assault. Mm. So we have, to, we have to get that made clearer to everybody. We have to have better systems in place so that people understand that more. Everybody understands that, that it's not a question of force, that it's not a question of a girl having to run away, you know, when it has happened, that, that the, the damage is done by people who uh, either don't know or don't care that that going ahead with any sexual activity um, to a certain level without consent is a criminal offence. Um, and there's an awful lot of work still there to be done on the wider on the wider thing. So, in in some ways, too, we have to I think just credit this uh, young woman now for keeping this for keeping up with it for the past five years. Our colleagues in the Rape Crisis Network there were mentioned on the news, uh, just saying that it was cruel. It was so long. The truth was you couldn't empanel a jury during um, during COVID. There was no, there, you know, there just wasn't enough space for a jury in our courtrooms. And that was that was difficult for an awful lot of people who were victims of crime and who needed cases to go on, who had to remember them. But in a case where so much depends on the evidence of the victim, it is a particular hardship that these cases take so long. We made a, a submission mm. uh, to, uh, we make various submissions to the Department of Justice, who to their credit are trying to improve the system. And we were suggesting that in a normal case, 
nobody should have to wait for the outcome of a sexual offence trial for more than a year. That seems to us to be a reasonable uh, length of time. Okay, there could be exceptions if it's hard to gather evidence and the rest of it, uh, but but they take far too long. And that was an added burden mm. on what was already a horrific set of events on the night. There must be people in the Midlands uh, who are just shocked beyond belief. I'm sure it's the case all over the country, but I, I, I don't know about you, Nolene, but I, I think the location is worth mentioning because we're talking about rural Ireland, and we're talking yeah. about very we're talking about very young people, uh, yeah. and I, I mean I'm sure people must be scratching their heads saying what happened, how, how did this come to this, how could five young men on the same night, they're all in their early twenties, no more than boys, young men, um, want to engage in that type of activity together, regardless of anything else. There's some sort of sexual distortion there, is there not, in their minds? So, it's hard to say, but I mean, that even five years later, on reflection, that four of them fully defended the case and said that there was no problem with consent in the case. So, there is is still an issue. Uh, There is still that... And the fifth, actually, only pleaded guilty just yes, before yes, uh, the trial. So, you know, so for five years, they still had that sense of, I suppose, righteous indignation or whatever it was uh, that they had. So there is there is still a problem. There is still a problem, too, in the, in the sense that, you know, that uh, a girl is, uh, is asked in the course of a case why she didn't run away after being sexually assaulted. I just think we don't understand enough about the impact of that kind of an assault, which might leave no physical mark whatsoever, but which can cause lifelong damage, you know, if it's, yeah. uh, with, without being treated. So, you know, it is just like, we don't understand how, um, I think there was evidence given, and I know sentencing still has to happen, So, mm. but there was evidence given that she was so shocked, she was thrown. That's a normal reaction. Uh, it's a normal reaction not to be able to be frightened uh, when you're uh, on your own. So, the amount of things we don't actually understand about how desperately hurt and damaged people can be by that kind of assault as well, I think is something we just have to we have to spend more time on, we have to mm. get more understanding. And in fact, we had last week, uh, we were, uh, yeah, last week we were in before the Erasmus uh, Committee on Gender Equality mm. because Citizens' Assembly uh, deliberations decided that we couldn't have equality between the genders until such time as we tackle this kind of these kind of misunderstandings about uh, what about what uh, a girl sh- should be and what a girl wants, what a boy should be and what a boy wants, and young men as well. So there is that, and just as you mentioned the Midlands there mm-hmm. as well, Michael, because you'd have a wide listenership. Of course, the rape crisis centres are there and are really valuable to anyone who might need some therapeutic support at this stage. You have, uh, I know, a lot of uh, contact with Rape Crisis Northeast in Dundalk. There's also rape crisis centres in Athlone and Tullamore, as well as our one in Dublin. There's 16 of them around the country, you know, Mm. and that's what we're all there for. We're there to support, in whatever way it's needed, we're there to support those who have suffered sexual assaults, who have suffered abusive uh, sexual activity, who may never go to court, but who know they were damaged by it. And we're also there to call it out and say, actually, as a, as a country, we could do much better in terms of the amount of support that's 
there and available for people and also in the way that we deal with what is a public harm mm. as well as a crime it's a harm and we would be a safer better society if we dealt with okay. it more uh, thoroughly than we do right now. Well there's help and support and there are so many people who are suffering on their own and feel there's no one they can talk to. Maybe the place to start is a phone call to your 24-hour helpline and that number again is 1-800-77-8888 that's 1-800-77-8888 the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre is of course online drcc.ie Nolene, we leave it there. Thank you, as always. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much indeed. Nolene Blackwell is uh, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. just want to bring you one comment uh, before we go to the break from Darren O'Rourke, TD, Sinn Féin TD for Meath East. Thank you, Deputy O'Rourke, for texting the programme following the interview with uh, your colleague, Rory Murakou in Louth. And uh, Darren O'Rourke says, Michael, you were conflating carbon budgets with carbon taxes. They're completely different. Carbon budgets are an exercise in climate change. They spell out the emissions reductions needed to meet our climate targets. Simple as that. Emissions reductions, it's for the government then to decide what policies, including taxes, they use to make the necessary changes to meet those emission reduction targets. There are options. They choose carbon tax increases. Sinn Féin don't. We oppose the carbon tax increases and we propose alternative ways to raise the money to deliver the emissions reductions, e.g. a solidarity tax on earnings over €140,000. To suggest there's no climate action without carbon tax is simply untrue. To suggest supporting carbon budgets is the same as supporting carbon tax increases is untrue. As I say, that's a message uh, that Sinn Féin's spokesperson on climate change, uh, Darren O'Rourke, TD, has texted to the programme. And many thanks to you for doing that. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, over 20,000 refugees have uh, come here from Ukraine. That figure is set to increase, and dramatically so. The government has been told it'll need an extra 5,000 beds before Easter. Uh, It looks as though tents will be used in Gormanston. Some 320 uh, tents will be set up there. Emergency accommodation in Cork, City West is to be used. And perhaps uh, we'll see warehouses being used uh, to house some of the people here because there's nowhere else for them to go. It's a dreadful emergency, if ever there was. Let's speak to Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest who works with homeless people and has done for many years, as you know. Good morning, Peter. Thank you indeed morning, for joining Michael. us on the programme uh, this morning. What do you make of uh, this crisis and how would you go about tackling it? <laughs> nobody knows mm. the answer to that yeah. question. Yeah. I don't know. The government doesn't know. Nobody knows. We've had a housing crisis for the last 20 years. We haven't even been able to house all those in Ireland who want to be housed. There's about 60,000 officially on the housing waiting list and probably another 60,000 who would like to be on the waiting list. Uh, So what has been been a crisis for the last 20 years is turning into a major, major uh, catastrophe. It's okay putting up refugees, Ukrainians in tents and in, uh, in, in barracks, but that's only a temporary measure. <laughs> and uh, I honestly don't see how that temporary measure uh, is, is not going to become permanent. The only... Uh, we've run out of hotel bedrooms. Uh, we've run out of all the options. 
However, there is one option. There are thousands of of uh, holiday homes in this country, <clears throat> mm. and I would be appealing to people who own a holiday home to give it up for a year or two <laughs> uh, to Ukrainian refugees. The state will pay them uh, for for doing that, uh, and to give up the the pleasure of going to your holiday home for a couple of weeks a year in order to house refugees. And I would go further and say that people who uh, aren't prepared to do that, that the government should requisition those holiday homes for uh, for a period maybe of two to three years. Mm, Okay, but you believe the government should pay people for those homes, for the use of them? I think it would soften the blow. I think, uh, yeah, I think people might be uh, worried that maybe, uh, you know, what might happen to their holiday home? Mm. Would it be damaged? Would, you know, what state would it be in when they get it back? So mm. if they were given, uh, as has been recommended by others, say maybe 400 euros a month mm. to uh, to lease that holiday home to uh, Ukrainian refugees uh, <clears throat> and with a guarantee that it will be returned to them in the same state that they got it in, Mm. Uh, I, I think that might be attractive to some people anyway. And what about tenancy rights? After two years, you'd have uh, significant rights. Uh, and if uh, the rent, well, if you like, was €400, Euro, what would that mean for the owner of the house? Well, I think we might need legislation. Uh, this is not a tenancy situation. Mm. You can have a licence agreement. A licence agreement is different from a tenancy agreement. And a licence agreement uh, is not... Uh, it, it does allow you to uh, recover your your premises without the uh, the bureaucracy that's involved in in uh, in, in ending a tenancy. Mm. So there are ways around it, and if legislation is needed to uh, improve that, then let's legislate. But yeah. I don't see any other option. Okay. People, we, we've we've housed families now for the last seven or eight years. We've housed families in Ireland in hotel bedrooms. Mm. We know the damage that that has caused. Yeah. The damage, and particularly to children. Uh, so the idea of uh, Ukrainian refugees going into hotel bedrooms—it's great for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, if yeah. it's a long-term solution, yeah. it's going to cause uh, further damage to people who have been already traumatised. Well, it'll cause all the problems that uh, those on the housing waiting list who were accommodated in hotels have already faced, and we know uh, how that is. You can't make your own meal. You haven't got your own bedroom. Children have nowhere to study or play, and all that sort of thing. Uh, I see that 36 Catholic religious congregations have offered some 450 rooms uh, in convents, retreat centres and former student accommodation houses. I'm sure that will help. Uh, I was reading that in an article in the Irish Times today uh, by Cormac McQuinn and Patsy McGarry uh, and they say that 3,000 offers of vacant properties to house refugees have failed to materialise. Uh, around 600 people have withdrawn their offers and nearly uh, over 2,000 have uh, not been contactable. But many of uh, the properties are, are proving I- inappropriate. I was kind of scratching my head uh, reading this. I don't know if you've seen this uh, this morning, uh, Peter, but they say that the inspectors are surveying properties and have 15 criteria to be assessed as adequate or not adequate, including structural condition, food preparation, storage and laundry facilities, potential hazards for small children and sanity facilities. And this is... Uh, the real uh, interesting part of it, I think, multiple toilets are required for privacy reasons in the case of families being hosted. Uh, accommodation with just one bathroom can be provided for single refugees in instances where there's an agreement between the person and the host. That just seems madness if you're talking about putting people into hotels or warehouses or tents for that matter. 
Uh, absolutely. I think we have a crisis. I don't know if that has penetrated the minds of those who think up these uh, <clears throat> these requirements. I doubt that there's that many single Ukrainian uh, refugees, I, mm. as far as I can women and ascertain. Children, yeah. Most of mm. them are women with children, uh, families fleeing. Uh, and certainly uh, somebody offers a, note, uh, a bedroom in their house would not be suitable for a family. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I, I think, yeah, I, I presume the... Uh, I presume the the thing in the background in all this is the threat of being sued if something goes wrong. So they're going to make sure that nothing can go wrong and put in all these bureaucratic requirements. But there won't be any toilets in a warehouse. Uh, There won't be any toilets in a a tent. uh, And no facilities to make uh, your own food or anything like that. I I, I think there's real security issues about putting women and children in in tents in the middle of a a field. Uh, They'd have to have security there to protect them, would they not? I don't know where they plan to put the tents. In uh, Gormanston Gorm- Army Camp. Gormanston Army Camp, apparently, uh, they're yeah. going to put heated tents <laughs> in, and it seems that they'll probably be in place and possibly in use by next weekend. Yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know. This is uh, something that we have never faced before. We've struggled to house our Irish uh, people in Ireland already prior to this uh, mm. crisis. And uh, they're expecting maybe 35,000 Ukrainian refugees to come. Uh, I honestly don't know the answer to that. Uh, I think the holiday homes thing is a crisis. This is a crisis. The Ukrainian refugees are fleeing Mm. from uh, from terror. They're traumatized. And I would think... uh, it's it's incumbent on people with holiday homes to relinquish the 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 uh, the possibility of using those holiday homes for a year or two in order to allow Ukrainian refugees to uh, uh, to to come and, and settle and have a uh, a proper life here for a yeah. while. I mean, most of them want to go back again to Ukraine. That's not going to happen for a long time. No, should the country's being flattened, yeah. Most of them would like to go mm. back, so it's not a permanent solution. It may be a, it may be necessary for a number of years, but uh, they do they do want to go back again. Yeah, um, if you were choosing, would you pay hotels or would you pay holiday home owners uh, to allow people to stay? Well, an hotel is a hundred euros a night on average, so you're talking of uh, three thousand euros a month. Uh, you pay somebody with a holiday home, even pay them a thousand euros a month for the use of their holiday home. It's far, far cheaper than, than using hotels. But the reality is we're going to have to use every hotel room available as well as all these other options that might be uh, that might be considered. Mm. Uh, and um, I hate to ask you this question, but it's going to be asked, uh, and as time goes on, uh, it's going to be asked more often. Uh, but what does this mean, or what will it mean for people who are already on the housing waiting list? Well, um, I, I don't think it's going to impact them particularly. Uh, the uh, the accommodation that's going to be offered to Ukrainian refugees is not accommodation that would be offered to uh, to to uh, to people on the on the housing waiting list, such as heated tents or uh, holiday homes or that. So I don't think it really impacts on them. And as I say, the Ukrainian refugee problem is hopefully temporary, maybe five years, maybe. uh, But it's a temporary problem and uh, Hmm. most of them will go back home again. 
So I don't think it. Uh, I don't think it's a question of uh, people on the housing waiting list are refugees. I think uh, refugees. I can't see them. Very few of them are going to be able to be offered uh, social housing or mm. council housing. I, I. I don't think that's. That's going to be a, a major we'll be ver- option. We'll be very lucky if they get a holiday home. Uh, otherwise, uh, we're looking at the likes of the tents or the warehouses or whatever. That's okay for temporary, yeah, but temporary, yeah. not okay for the next two years. Or, or the floor of the sports hall up in Dundalk. I think about 50 people are, are, are going to be asked yeah. uh, to sleep there. I mean, how long could you do that for? Uh, week or two, really? Well, a week or two ideally should yeah. be the maximum, but it's it's going to go on much longer. No, it's it's a real crisis. Nobody has the answer mm. to this. Government don't have the answer. They're in crisis mode, trying to figure out where they're going to put all these people. Yeah, nobody has the answer. So, uh, best best I can come up with is the holiday home idea, and if necessary, pass legislation to uh, to requisition them for maybe two years uh, while we're dealing with this uh, with this crisis. Okay, all right. Uh, you're never short. Sure. the protest from you're, the homeowners. <laughs> you're, you're, you're never short of ideas, Peter. But uh, I think, uh, like all of us, uh, you're struggling, which maybe which is a surprise to me. I have to say, with uh, finding solutions to this. But I think that probably in itself tells its own story and the scale of the problem. Listen, thank you very much indeed uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. Much appreciated as always and always good to talk to you. That's Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest who works with the homeless. Michael Reed on LMFM. We'll talk about Ireland's neutrality with uh, the Irish anti-war movement in a moment. But before we do, let's take a a listen uh, to what the Ukrainian foreign minister had to say yesterday. This is why it is so urgent for allies not to... uh, how to put it mildly, not to tell us that they are still thinking that they are, they have to do all the procedures, that uh, there are many uh, issues which have to be sorted out before they make decisions. Either you help us now, and I'm speaking about days, not weeks, or your help will come too late. And uh, many people will die. Many civilians will lose their homes. Many villages will be destroyed. Exactly because this help came too late. Speaking about negotiations, uh, I said it already. uh, Unfortunately, to my deepest regret, Bucha Bucha massacre is just the tip of the iceberg. We already see from reports from Mariupol that Mariupol is much, much worse on all accounts. And uh, you ask the right question. How does it feel talking to the Russians after all this happened? There are two points which I want to make. First, I have only one question to the Russians. Who are they? Where do they come from that they have no compassion or empathy, neither to children whom they rape, nor to women and girls who are raped and killed, nor to civilians, to old people, even to animals and pets? They kill pets. I, I don't really, I, I don't, out of the butcher, I don't understand who are they, who are these people? 
And while asking myself this question, I also understand that to prevent more butchers, we have to talk. We have to talk and see how we can end this war. However, and I will be very honest with you, it is clear that uh, the positions of delegations in talks will be defined by the successes of relevant armies on the battleground and the impact of sanctions imposed on Russia. Right. Dimitro Kuleba, who is uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs for Ukraine. Uh, as you know, the President, Michael D. Higgins, has called for an informed and respectful debate on the future of Irish neutrality. Let's speak to Sarah O'Rourke, a member of the Irish Anti-War Movement Steering Committee. Good morning to you, Sarah, and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, a very graphic and stark account of the reality of life for people in Ukraine there from uh, the foreign minister uh, and one he believes that uh, will be decided on the battlefield. Do you believe uh, that there is a role for Ireland in battlefields of that nature? Good morning, Michael, and and thanks for having us on and, and thank you for having this important discussion I mean, everybody who's watching and listening to what's happening uh, Ukraine, it's, it's devastating. You know, the horrors are you know, unspeakable. And I don't think that Ireland has a role to play in, in battlefields. And that's why I think, you know, the president, Michael Dees, Higgins' comments during the week were very, very welcome indeed about the role that Ireland can play in terms of positive neutrality. Because sometimes people think neutrality is an abstract, you know, do-nothing approach when in fact it, it, it can be proactive. So I think if there's going to be talks between Ukraine and Russia, don't they need neutral actors to perhaps broker those talks um, and, and help, uh, you know, in demands for a ceasefire and rather than so many countries who are involved on, on different sides? Is that a way of justifying cowardice? Well, I don't see it as cowardice to be playing a proactive role in calling for a ceasefire and calling for a peaceful solution. Because at the end of the day, the people who are suffering are the people of Ukraine. And does a continued war benefit them? Absolutely not. Would a ceasefire help them? Absolutely. So is it not then very proactive to be involved in calling for a ceasefire and calling for... You know, peaceful and diplomatic solutions to this. Mm. Yeah, I suppose the reason for the question, Sarah, is that it seems uh, an, uh, an, an, an impossible objective, impossible to achieve. Well, it, see, it certainly seems or feels impossible at the moment, um, given the, the scale of what's happening and uh, the the absolute horrors of you know, from, you mm. know that we're seeing reported from different cities. But it, it can't continue. At some point, there will have to be talks, there will have to be a ceasefire. And I think the main question that we're asking is what role can Ireland, can Ireland play in that? Ireland has a, mm. uh, you know, we have a very good international reputation between our UN um, peacekeeping troops, you know, people like Mary Robinson at the UN, um, our long campaigning since the 1950s for disarmament and for, you know, nuclear disarmament, you know, various um, campaigns we've been involved in at international level to reduce armaments and weapons. So we are very respected 
in that regard at an international level. And we have been asking and calling for the Irish government to, to use that strength, to use that position um, to help the people of Ukraine in a much different way than, than, than just sending armaments. Mm, OK, but we're so far away from that. I think the only question, well, maybe there's two questions. One is how many people can get out and how can we help those people when they do manage to get out? But uh, the other question uh, is about uh, the blood flowing. It's, uh, it's inevitable that more blood is going to flow. It's a question of how much more blood is going to flow. Well, I, I mean, that's, I don't think anybody can answer that question. Um, but in terms of what we can do, obviously humanitarian aid, um, we are taking people in, which is, is absolutely right that we do. Also, I mean, there's been discussion this week about cancelling uh, Ukrainian debt. Um, there needs to be more discussion about that. Um, there, there's also been talks this week of Ukraine and, and its neutral status being a possibility. Uh, and that's been up for discussion as well. So there are a lot of things um, to talk about, which unfortunately we're not having enough um, debate about these things, um, and we're, we're 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 just looking at the horrors of what's happening. And I think it's time that people start start looking at how can we how how can we help um, both in terms of humanitarian aid, debt write off, and politically as well. Should we have asked Ukraine to capitulate to have or to have surrendered? That's a that's a difficult question. Mm. I mean, um, it would it would have avoided a, a, a loss of a lot of Ukrainian blood and a, a, a lot of Russian blood, for that matter. I don't think asking either side to capitulate would help, given the current um, crisis they find themselves in mm. and the heightened situation. But certainly, a ceasefire. We're calling for a ceasefire, mm. and from a ceasefire, then um, negotiations. But, you know, the answer to that, uh, and it's a, a firm no, as things stand from Russia, I suppose the question is, how long can they go on for? And can the Russians keep up this attack indefinitely? Uh, it seems many of those who are expert in this believe that they could continue it for uh, a couple of years. Uh, and if we mind our own business, if you like, and don't ask the Ukrainians to surrender at this stage, how do we support them? Do we send them the guns and the tanks, the bombs and the planes? Well, that is the big worry that everybody has. How long can this go on? How long can Russia fight on? And how long can Ukraine um, defend itself? That, that's a question. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a mm. military or security analyst. I can't I can't, or I don't have a crystal ball. I can't give you an exact date. But what but, I do, but think you're, you're hearing there, you're hearing the same analysis as I am. I'm yeah. sure. And I suppose the question is, do we stand back and allow Ukrainians to be lambs to the slaughter? No, but there's no there's no mention or no question of people standing back. I'm I'm arguing. We're arguing for proactive, um, actively demanding ceasefires and working at international level for a ceasefire and for diplomatic uh, negotiations. But ordinary civilians continue to be slaughtered, don't they, Sarah? Well, they wouldn't continue to be slaughtered if there was a ceasefire. (laughs) And I just see one thing that you did say, which I think is important to talk about, is Russia and what's happening in Russia. Mm. So we've seen what's happening with the anti-war movement in Russia. Thousands of people, you know, arrested and very repressive clamping down on the anti-war activities in Russia, which we are very concerned about, because if there's one thing that, again, isn't being talked about enough, is what is happening in Russia and what 
how, how, what are the possible ways of, of, of stopping Putin? One is what happens at home on his own, um, on his own turf. And supporting the Russian anti-war movement is something um, we're very, you know, we feel very strongly about. They're very brave. People can lose jobs for signing letters in a country like Russia. Mm. So thousands and thousands of people have been standing up and I think we have to support them as well. And we are actually having a solidarity with the Russian anti-war movement uh, protest on, on Saturday at the Russian embassy. So there's a lot of factors mm. here. It's never, it's never, these things are never simple. They're never clear cut. But certainly what happens in Russia does influence um, the course of events as well. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about your protest. Uh, what time is that on Saturday? It's 12 o'clock at the Russian embassy on Saturday and we're, we're obviously standing with uh, people of Ukraine. Um, you know, without a doubt, we've had solidarity protests um, with people of Ukraine in the last few weeks. Um, but Saturday is about standing with the Russian uh, anti-war movement. In- incredibly brave for people in Russia to, to, to stand up uh, in, the, in the current climate. And we see that as one of the as one of the, the ways out of this, a strong anti-war movement and in Russia and a strong, uh, you know, opposition to Putin can only help uh, mm. the, the future of the situation. How strong or how brave is it? Is it suicidal or is it uh, guaranteeing a term in prison? Uh, we've heard from Amnesty International that anyone who voices opposition to the war uh, is being punished and it's a country where I think over the years it hasn't been unusual for people to go missing in the dark of night. Absolutely. Um, you know, that we've seen, I'm sure people have seen the scenes of people being dragged away. Um, a Russian prison is not a place I would like to, to spend any time in. So the bravery is is unimaginable for people like us, who you know, in a, in a democracy like Ireland, protesting um, on the streets uh, of our capital cities are, you know, is a, is a right that many people take for granted and, um, and all support to the people in Russia who are, who are braving that. Um, and anything that we mm. can do here, I think, can only, can only help them. I think the majority of people in this country want Ireland to be a, a neutral country. I think uh, at the same time, Sarah, there's a, a lot of people who are grappling with uh, the conundrum uh, that we find ourselves in at the moment and the cruelty uh, that uh, people are, are suffering in Ukraine and what's happening there, the slaughter of so many people and uh, if there is anything we can do and if there isn't something we can do diplomatically then it is a time to call into question that neutrality. Uh, that perhaps is going to be debated for some time to come but we have this ongoing situation and this terrible war uh, and Ukraine not just calling for the guns and the tanks and the bombs and the planes but they're also asking for the boys uh, from the NATO countries to come in and fight this war with them. Uh, are, are you concerned uh, about NATO's involvement? They've stood back so far and perhaps uh, by the grace of God they've stood back so far but are, are you concerned that that may change and this may trigger a nuclear event? Yes, we're very concerned about that. I mean, the role of NATO, this has been going on you know, longer than, than the last seven weeks. I mean, for many months now, there has been an increase of, of NATO activity in the region. There's, we're also concerned about the increased militarization of the EU. Um, and if NATO were to go in, I mean, we're, we're already talking about bloodbaths. If NATO were to go in and if there were to be uh, you know, a, a war between NATO 
you know, EU, the US uh, and Russia, then then certainly um, it would be like nothing anybody has ever uh, imagined. So that 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 is the worry and that is the urgency um, around a ceasefire. Um, that has to be what everybody is working towards. Yeah. Um, not stoking up potential. I mean, we're, it's a very um, volatile situation, obviously. So any so all of those forces, you know, EU, NATO, uh, and others, you know, have to be careful of their language. Have to be careful of, you know, what they're saying, what they're doing, and um, and not further worsening um, the situation for people in Ukraine. Okay. I think everybody would hope for a ceasefire, uh, Sarah. Uh, I'd imagine there's a complete consensus on uh, that. Uh, and uh, just to remind people uh, that you're asking them to meet with you if they wish to at 12 o'clock on Saturday at the Russian Embassy. Thanks yeah, indeed. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sarah. Thank yeah. you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Sarah O'Rourke, a member of the Irish Anti-War Movement Steering Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments that have been coming to us. Thanks to Noel, who called to say, to be honest with you, at this stage, all of the politicians make my blood boil. If you notice, the doll was full to the brim when it came to Zelensky's address. Where were they when uh, they were discussing carbon tax in our country? So many people suffering, yet it wasn't important enough for them to be there. I'd bet that not one of those politicians have to get out of bed in the morning and worry about putting food on the table, being able to heat their homes and so on. All right for the Green Party to be talking about retrofitting your home. They can afford it. Most of us can't. I'm rationing my own electricity and my heating. I've one bag of coal left as the odd evening we don't put on the heating and light the fire and hope the heat will rise to heat the rest of the house just to try and conserve it. It's disgraceful. They're not representing their own citizens. I work hard but yet I'm finding it a struggle. Who represents me? Our caller asks. Thank you indeed Noel, uh, Noel, I beg your pardon uh, for your text. Uh, uh, Another call to us uh, from John, who was listening to Rory Muraku, who uh, he felt was talking out of both sides of his mouth. He says it's his view that Sinn Féin don't care about working people. John would like Sinn Féin to get into power and we could see what they can do. Uh, thanks uh, for that. I'm sure there's a lot of people who would agree with you and a lot of people who wouldn't, as usual. Somebody else in touch, Mick, uh, who asks about female genital mutilation and if parents bring their children back to their native countries and they're mutilated, are they in breach of Irish law? It's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to, but I would imagine they should be. Uh, Anthony says, it seems your guest, Father Peter McVeary, is advocating that we become a police state to accommodate refugees from a war that we had nothing to do with. As a matter of interest, how many has he taken in or indeed yourself, asks Anthony. Thanks uh, for asking, Anthony. Uh, somebody else says uh, the government is planning to put refugees in tents in Gormanston right next to where the military range are shooting on the range. It's due to start in a couple of weeks. I'm sure they'll be delighted with that. I'm sure it'll be cancelled in fairness. Thanks uh, though, uh, for making the point. Uh, somebody else says, what's wrong with all of the empty houses in the country? Give them to the people that are on the housing list and make room for all of the rented houses in the country. Uh, somebody else uh, saying, uh, all well and good with Peter 
uh, McVeary uh, talking uh, about uh, accommodation and so on. What about President Higgins? I'm sure he has loads of rooms going spare. Why doesn't he offer some rooms and set an example? Uh, another caller says, build on the Curra. Also loads of old schools that could be renovated, plus army barracks for that matter. Uh, Marie uh, says, I hope uh, that those young thugs uh, who sexually assaulted that 17-year-old girl are put out of uh, the country when they finish their time in jail. Thank you indeed. Somebody else says, uh, do you honestly think that the carbon tax will be channeled into retrofitting? If you do, you're dreaming. When cigarettes were increased years ago, it was to fund treatment for smoking-related illnesses. Uh, dream on, uh, our caller says. It funds uh, the increased salaries and uh, the likes of Houlihan's appointment. Retrofitting is out of most people's reach. Not going to happen. Thank you if you were in touch today. That's our programme for this morning and this week and God willing we'll see you for our next programme Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.